So welcome to the Invest in Investor podcast. This week I've got Gemma Milne sat opposite me, who is a tech and science writer. Um, she's an entrepreneur and she's also an innovation specialist. So Gemma, let's hear a little bit about your background, please. Awesome. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, I always actually find it very difficult to explain myself because I do a lot of very different things. But I guess at the crux of it is this idea of promoting, helping move forward and helping invest in deep technology. My background is kind of strange. Um, I studied maths at St Andrews, so I guess I'm a, I'm a nerd by training. I ended up in investment banking, as most mathematicians end up being lured into. Didn't like that. Ended up in advertising, the other slightly questionable industry, and realised that wasn't for me either. So I actually ended up in the innovation team in Ogilvy & Mather, which is a large advertising company. And my job was essentially as a startup scout and a sort of innovation consultant within the agency. So my job was essentially finding startups that might be of interest to the world of advertising and to all the clients we had at Ogilvy. So essentially go find interesting stuff in the world was my brief, which was obviously super broad, but very interesting. Sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And, you know, I was essentially the person people would come to like, oh, hey, Gemma, can you go tell American Express why they should care about AI or something? And I'd be sort of trotted out to go do that. Did a lot of public speaking and writing and all that jazz and kind of as this innovation person was called a tech innovation strategist. And then in 2016, they decided to shut the innovation team. So I was made redundant and I became a freelancer, which I guess is what I am now. And I do various different things in my work as a freelancer. I do a lot of writing about the world of science um, for BBC, The Guardian, whoever. I do a lot of kind of branded stuff. I do a lot of work with Siemens. I do consulting with small startups. I do a lot of public speaking. And then I also am now doing a lot more in the world of sort of, I guess, investment advisory is probably the best word to put it, helping investors work out what's going on in the world of deep tech. Do you think that you've guided your own route to where you are or where it's just kind of... Well, I mean, the, the love of science and, and tech and research has absolutely always been there. That's my passion at the end of the day. And I like to think that what I'm doing now is a kind of culmination of everything that's come before, but no doubt it'll change in a year and I'll say that that's what I should have been doing. That can be um, my last question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the work I'm doing, my, my side project, um, it's probably the best word to put it, is Science Disrupt, which is our podcasting community organisation. And that really comes from a place of passion. Although I suppose it's, it's now a company and kind of <laughs> growing out of its um, faster than we can keep up. So I suppose there's an element of control that's gone into what I'm doing. But I think also just, frankly, being exposed to so many interesting things, particularly as a scout for Ogilvy, really made me realise that I probably wasn't thinking big enough in terms of my career. So it's, it's probably a, a combination of passion and just generally my eyes being opened. So Science Disrupt, you just talked about there. Can you elaborate a little bit more about this? Sure. So it basically started as my boyfriend and I having loads of conversations about science. He is a scientist um, at UCL. He's a computational biologist. And we had loads of conversations about the world of science. I was really frustrated that science wasn't communicated well. You know, I really wanted everyone to love maths as much as I love maths and all this sort of thing. He was really frustrated with the sort of the actual day-to-day life of research or how things are quite inefficient and, and so on and so forth. So we used to just talk about it a lot. I got an opportunity to do a talk at South by Southwest about how could we change science and I, I, just, I just thought it'd be a bit fun, to be honest, to do this talk. And it got a really good response. And people were coming over saying, oh, do you have a blog? Do you have a company? What do you do? And I'm like, nothing. I work in advertising. And <laughs> so we thought, actually, let's try and do something about this. So we started a podcast, very similar to this, where we just interviewed people who were changing science. Instead of complaining about what was wrong with science, we wanted to find the people who were trying to do things better, interview them and give them a platform. 
So we started that in 2016. We've been going ever since. It's kind of either weekly or bi-weekly, depending how busy we are. Yeah. But we've also, as a result, then started, we started running events in London because we realised there was like a big community of people interested in, you know, science startups and how do we, you know, make science more open or how do we change the structure of PhD and all these sorts of questions that weren't really getting asked in the mainstream media. And we now do a bit of consulting and we have a big community of people and it's kind of become a bit of a, I guess... Uh, one-stop shop for this idea of how do we change science so yeah i guess we're both media and community and a little bit of consulting thrown in so how does this link up with startups then well the idea of a science startup is it's both very new and very old and what i mean by that is i think the idea of an sme a science sme is kind of normal in the circles of particularly cambridge and oxford imperial ucl spin outs is probably a better word for it But this idea of science startup is quite new. And this is less about people within a university making some kind of discovery, going to the tech transfer office, negotiating as hard as possible to keep as much of the company as they can and then either licensing or spinning out. Science startups, a lot of the time, is now people with the skills in science, you know, young postdocs, maybe even PhDs who have left, who go, I really like being a researcher. I love being able to do all this stuff, but I don't want to stay in academia because of X, Y, and Z. There are many, many reasons. But I want to go create a company which, I don't know, comes up with a new agriculture technology or comes up with a new kind of, you know, meat for, you know, fake meat, for instance. A lot of that comes from from the world of science startups, you know, new materials, so on and so forth. And so sometimes it's not always about, I don't know, taking the IP from a university and then creating something off it. It's sometimes people creating stuff from scratch. And this kind of world of science startups and kind of the world of science SMEs it feels like it's starting to have a bit of a revolution in the sense that it's looking over at Silicon Valley and this like tech startups and tech crunch and cool conferences and blah, 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 marketing and going, oh, we should probably do some of that if we want to actually, you know, sell stuff and be a growth scaling company. And obviously it's a, it's a very interesting space because a lot of the SMEs within science don't need all that stuff. They're, they're B2B most of the time or they're wanting to just be acquired by a pharmaceutical company or something like that. But you're also seeing this big shift in a lot of, for instance, data and AI being used to, I don't know, analyze DNA, for instance. And those kind of companies have to act more like a Silicon Valley digital tech startup as opposed to a biotech SME spun out from university. So there's a bit of a revolution happening in this world of science startups, and it's changing the way people are doing science. Research is happening within companies. People who are young researchers are getting more and more frustrated by academia and in the past people who were frustrated by academia would go work for a pharmaceutical company or they'd go and work as a quant for an investment bank or they'd you know use their skills somewhere but not directly doing the research now there's an opportunity where they can go be an entrepreneur so it's there's much more funding available for this there's schemes available for this you know the appetite there's kind of new kinds of investors obviously angels are a big part of that but even vcs are starting to look at things like biotech that they hadn't really looked at before so suddenly you've got this other option for researchers that, that wasn't always there before, particularly if they weren't in the life sciences. So there's a real revolution happening in science. And part of that is the entrepreneurial option, but even the entrepreneurial way of thinking. How can I actually make science better from within and all these sorts of things? So it, it all links up. So what are the largest barriers for these scientists we kind of get to start a company or oh gosh, that's get a large, to that stage. That's a large question. There's quite a lot of barriers. I mean, one of them is is the university. So IP negotiations is always really, really hard. 
Is this not people that are, are not using the university as a There's both. There's both. Stone? There's both. For instance, say you go out of academia and don't take your IP and then you want to do a science startup. How do you prove to people that you're credible, right? That's a huge, big problem. You don't have direct IP already because you have to develop. You need money to develop, but investors want IP in order to invest. So you have this vicious circle of how do you actually get the money to then get the IP to then... So that's why a lot of people end up staying with the university, negotiating with the tech transfer office, you know, and losing a lot of their equity as a result or being tied into contracts that aren't always great. And that's not all universities, but just some. That kind of credibility thing can sometimes be an issue. Funding is always an issue because, as I'm sure all of your investors who do anything to do with life science will know or any kind of deep tech, you need a large amount of upfront investment to allow for research and development without any income at all. So it's very different from, say, a digital startup where you can more or less create something very, very quickly. You can immediately get customers. You can immediately get people opting in so you can get an idea of the size of your market or your audience, whatever, and your return happens much faster. The difference is in deep tech or science startups, you're going to need to invest orders of magnitude more for many more years before you get your return. The difference is the amount you invest is held in the company. So it's directly going into R&D. It's not getting wasted on marketing or whatever, right? Totally held in R&D. That then obviously increases in value as the R&D gets better and better, more patents are filed, more, I don't know, clinical trials are done, whatever it is you need to do. And then your price of exit is probably going to be a lot, lot higher. You just have to wait much longer. So that's a huge barrier in a sense of how do you convince an investor really, really early on without very much data to prove and maybe without very much, I don't know, inherent value already in the company that it's going to be of huge value in 10 years time. That's a really hard thing to convince, particularly if you're not sitting on, I don't know, 20 years experience as a professor at Cambridge or you're not sitting on a whole load of patents you've not already spun out. So those kind of credibility investment are probably, I would say, two of the biggest challenges. The third final one, softer challenge, I would say, is also around community because, and you know, not to plug science truck, but that's kind of why we now do more than just a podcast. It's all right, plug away. <laughs> but that, and that was the insight we had was there's so many resources, events, uh, I don't know, services around this idea of the Silicon Valley tech startup, right? You know, you go and type an event right tech startup and there's like a trillion events every night in London, Cambridge, Oxford, you know, particularly if you're in one of these spaces, maybe if you're in Manchester, it's slightly different. But the point is there's there's lots going on in this space. But if you are, I don't know, a biotech founder, you can't just rock up to any event and expect people to understand your challenges in the same way. It just doesn't work like that. So you end up with kind of these gutsy biotech entrepreneurs or science entrepreneurs who think like Silicon Valley people but they don't necessarily have the folk around them who also understand and to learn from and, and whatever. So this idea of community is kind of lacking and kind of going back a couple of steps, the community for even just being a researcher and feeling like you want to be innovative, like where do you go? You're sitting in, I don't know, your lab and you're like, this is great, but I'd really like to do something on the side or I'd like to do this. Like, well, where do you go for that? You know, like, yes, you can go with the usual routes of how do you, you know, do an Instagram shop or something, right? There's loads of resources on how to do that. But where are the resources that tell you, oh, you could like go and try and get funding and start a company that like ferments meat. You know, that's just not there. And so the, the, the community, the support services, even just the Googling of stuff is not quite as rich in the world of, of science entrepreneurship. But that's changing. I mean, there's a lot of particularly in the hubs like 
Boston, London, Silicon Valley, Golden Triangle, probably I should say, as opposed to London. It's definitely there, but you know, a perfect example, Bristol, good friend Harry up there. He's a science entrepreneur, but he also started a space for life science and material entrepreneurs because Bristol has this incredible chemistry department, really, really good. But they don't spin out anything because they don't have as much facility and as much community and as much help in actually trying to create companies out of the incredible research they're doing. So he's created literally a, like a co-working space, an open lab, has got all the great equipment. He's like acquired, he's like such a hustler. He's acquired it from all these crazy places. But he's got amazing like spectrometers and all these devices. And they're now spinning companies out way faster than they've ever done in Bristol, just from like two years of the space or however long it is that it's been there. So it just goes to show if you have that little bit of extra support function, you can do amazing things. All the unis we've got in the UK that aren't spinning stuff out. Do you think that having the business support as well, the business knowledge and the business support is paramount to this? Absolutely, because a lot of researchers fall into the trap of, and again, I'm I'm not got conspiracy theory against tech transfer offices, but a lot of the issue is that the researchers don't know how to negotiate equity. They don't know how to negotiate license deals. They don't know how to actually how you hire someone or start a company because they've not had to do that before. They're used to being in the research context. Although admittedly, the actual skills you're doing as a researcher are very similar to an entrepreneur, but that, let's put that to site for one second. They're going to their tech transfer office. The tech transfer office are going, how can we make the most profit of this idea? Do we spin out as a company or we just do we license it? And they're looking at how much percentage of this idea does the university want and how much should we give to the researcher and a lot of time the researcher doesn't have the knowledge of how to negotiate or even the knowledge that they can negotiate or even things like that and harry's a perfect example where he went and asked someone how much equity should i get for this idea and they were like oh you should be getting you know quite a large amount went to tech transfer office and they offered him you know less than 10 percent or something ridiculous and he was like absolutely not like you're just going to lose the idea i'm not going to spin that out But he knew that. He knew that he could negotiate. A lot of people don't know that. So ideas are lost a lot of time. And it's the same, you know, how do I hire someone who's not a scientist? Like, that's not something a scientist normally has to think about. They normally think about how do I hire people into my lab? How do I do the finances? How do I raise money? How do I apply for a patent? How do I go through the FDA? You know, how do I try and get a CE mark? These are things that you are not taught as a researcher unless you're spinning out. So just getting that information and getting that help is what's needed for more of this stuff to kind of happen. I know you're very close to another type of funding. A lot of our podcasts are doing with equity funding with angel investors and VCs. But let's talk about Horizon 2020. What do you do? What do they do? (laughs) Yeah, Horizon 2020. So basically, it's European money. So the European Commission have this extremely large pot of money that they give to deep technology and science. Um, So Horizon 2020 covers lots of things all the way through from actually research grants, so like basic science and things that are probably not ever going to be spun out, all the way up to actually doing programs where they partner with existing science entrepreneurs or SMEs or whatever to create something to go to market. So they have this program, I think it's called the Executive Agencies for Small and Medium Enterprises or something like that, that comes under the European Commission. And their job is to essentially accelerate the growth of SMEs and startups in the world of deep tech. So they have various different types of funding. They've got like, you know, you can have funding just to do like a feasibility study. You know, is this idea actually worth pursuing? All the way through to early stage funding where they have SME1, I think it's called where it's up to 500,000 euros and that's for early, early stage. And then the one that I work with is called SME2, 
which is up to two and a half million euros. Almost everyone asks for the full amount. Um, although you do have to say what you need it for, but up to two and a half million euros, unless you have a you know crazy good reason for asking for more. To essentially, it's about how do you get to the point of commercialization of whatever you're doing. And they have various different juries that cover different expertise. So you'll have like an agriculture jury, you'll have a communications networks jury, you know, people doing 5G research and things like that. You'll have people specifically doing medical devices, you'll, you know, so it's all deep technology stuff that has to have a sort of research element to it or has, you know, is going to require a lot of help to come to market. The juries you're talking about is as if they're pitching to them to get the funding. Yes, okay. So sorry, I didn't explain that very well at all. So, okay. I'm a startup. I would like some money for the European Commission. A grant. This is. A, gra- a grant. Yeah, a grant. Equity free. You know, they give you a coach and you have to do work packages and so on and so forth, but it's equity free. And the idea is you have to basically fill in a huge, huge proposal, one of these big proposals that you do for research grants or whatever. Most people are submitting about 90 pages PDF, you know, the whole load of supporting data, so on and so forth. What then happens is that goes into remote juries. So the European Commission have basically sourced experts on various different things, deep tech, and they basically check the science, if that makes sense. They check the tech, they check the science, is this feasible? Are these people legitimate? They do background checks and all the people that apply, all that jazz. And then the top like 130 for each kind of submission round go to the juries who are in Brussels. I'm a member of one of the juries, jury four or jury six, depending on which one you're talking about. And um, what happens is the top, top of the top interview with each jury and the jury decides whether or not they get the money. So we as a jury basically are going, okay, you've already passed the science test, but we're going to check it again just to make sure. But you've already passed the sort of science test. We're going to check the business, your ability to scale. Is this actually something that's going to change the world? Is this something that's going to be European-wide and not just one country-wide? Is this something that's got a huge degree of excellence? You know, is, is this something that can be patentable? Is this something that's not going to be stolen? You know, so on and so forth. So we have a lot of different criteria, basically, that we have to think about. But really, a lot of it is just, do we think this is worth funding using public money? And what's interesting is each jury is made up of various different kind of experts. There's six people in every jury. And on each jury, you'll have like two people who are the expert in the science. So I sit on the biotech, pharma, medical device jury. And uh, we always have two people who know their stuff really, really deeply. There'll be, you know, current researchers and something like that in particular spaces. You'll always have two investors, normally like one angel and then maybe one VC or something like that, maybe a country investor. Then you normally have someone like me who's kind of a bit more random, knows the space really well, understands the kind of challenges, probably a community kind of person, which is supposes me. Um, and then you normally have a lawyer or something like that who can understand patents and kind of the process of working with corporates and so on and so forth. Do you go on to mentor them or help them? No, we're not allowed. So they get assigned a mentor depending on what they need, but it's conflict. So we're not allowed to actually be the mentor. Our job is to read their big submissions that they send in. And then we discuss within the jury before they come what's our immediate sort of concerns or what's the immediate things we like, so on and so forth. They then come in, they do a 10-minute pitch. We then question them for 20 minutes. And then we have a discussion as a jury. Do we want to give them the money, yes or no? Yeah. So how many companies do you see and how many times a year do you get together as a jury? So this is actually the first year they've done the in-person jury. Before, they always just used to do the remote evaluation. But the problem they were finding... (laughs) which is, I think is kind of interesting, is that they were always putting through really good science, but they weren't always putting through very good teams because they couldn't find a way of assessing if they were sort of a good business. You need to meet them. 
Right. And so our job is less actually to go in and ask a million questions about the research because remote evaluation is already done, although we do do that. It's more about going, you know, what's your strategy um, for the next five years? Like, how exactly are you going to spend this money? Who are you going to hire? How are you going to go to market? Which sales strategy? Like, it's, it's a lot, a lot more sort of business focused, particularly when it comes to things like doing clinical trials and, you know, what if it fails? Who are you working with? What hospitals? You know, all these kind of questions. And so this is the first year they've done this. The reason I was telling you that is because they did a week in February, uh, then a week in April, a week in June, just last week, and then they've got the final one in November. So they're four a year. And each of those, they put about 130 companies into the juries, and then each jury sees between 19 and 25, depending on how many are in your area. So you're interviewing, you know, all week, basically, which is great. It's fun, but it's great. They want us to invest this money. This is the idea is that we're filling the gap with public money that allows us to take risks and things, of course, that we think is worth taking risks on and bridging the so-called valley of death. So a lot of companies kind of get to the point where they should be going into, I don't know, clinical trial phase two or something like this, which then would allow them to either start going to market or work with a pharmaceutical, but they can't afford to do that. This costs millions of pounds to do these clinical trials. So they try and get the money, and if they can't, they just have to shut down, even if they've got something brilliant. So this money is about trying to bridge this gap between, you know, do the trial get to the point that you're then going to need, I don't know, some kind of corporate to come in and, you know, work with you, or maybe you're going to need more funding, maybe you're going to need to go public, like, what is it you're going to do? But there's this big gap between getting to that point for these science companies. So this money is there for that. And there's a good chunk of it, and good companies apply for it. We don't actually get very many applications in the UK. I would suspect it's probably because we have quite good funding through Innovate UK, and it's also not advertised very well at all, this money, which is a real shame. Whereas we get loads of Spanish companies because in Spain they make a real effort to advertise this money because there's not as much federal funding. So it's very interesting seeing what countries we get more of and which ones we get less of. But there's there's certainly, I mean, you can look at all the ones that are funded. There's very few UK and that's not because they're not getting it, it's because they're not applying. That's interesting because we had Nigel Walker, who's head of lending at Innovate UK, and I can't remember the exact figure, but it was something about four and a half billion pounds that they've invested in companies that's mm-hmm. kind of on par with the EU. Question that I can imagine people that are listening will think is, what is the impact of Brexit on the research and innovation, both in the UK and Europe? Yeah. Uh, is there going to be any at all? Because I know this obviously, well, will it continue after 2020? Well, Horizon Europe, we've been told we'll still be fine with. Okay. We've been told. Yeah. But I mean, as everything with Brexit, I mean, nothing's really been confirmed properly. I think the effect, I don't think, is necessarily going to be on funding because they probably will keep that scheme somehow. They've already launched the Horizon Europe, which starts in 2021, as you said. I think the impact on research with Brexit is not necessarily going to be funding. I think a lot of it's going to be to do with talent and how we collaborate. I mean, if you look at, I mean, all startups are super international, but particularly when you look at you know, universities and research teams and labs. I mean, if you go around London looking at all the different nationalities of researchers, there's so many Europeans and obviously further afield too. I think a lot of the impact is going to be around how are they going to feel about staying in the UK once Brexit's gone, particularly if they can go and work at another European institute. You only have to look at places like France who have just put so much money into a becoming a startup nation but b they're putting a lot of money into funding researchers like trying to actually get researchers to go work at you know paris labs and things like that so my worry is a little bit more with the collaboration element less 
fun thing. That's cleared up the Brexit issue. (laughs) But let's talk about the difference between traditional funding and EU funding or government funding. Sure. I mean, part of it is is the kind of the obvious part where it's, you know, you're not giving away any equity. So it's not free money, but it is free money in a sense. And particularly we're thinking about the ownership of your business. So that's one big one. The second one is, yes, you're tracked by the EU and you're given support, but it's less about being tracked in order to then get value later on. It's more being tracked so that we can support you. And I'm not saying that, you know, investors who've got equity are not supportive, but there is a vested interest to tracking more because they're thinking about things like exits or so on and so forth later on. So you don't have the same kind of pressure once the investment's been made. The downside, I think, is there's kind of an interesting conversation around like smart money versus dumb money. So like, it's not just the money, right? Particularly when you're looking at angels or VCs or whatever, you're looking at their experience. What do they bring to the money? Like, what can they open up for you? All these sorts of things. And with the EU money, I would argue that maybe you're not guaranteed the same amount of knowledge of what you're going to get at the other side other than the money, right? So that's one thing. And the other side is the process of even getting the money. I mean, having to do grant writing and, you know, applying for a grant is quite an arduous process. Yes, it's a long time to speak to an angel and build a relationship with a VC, but essentially having to write a document in a particular way without ever having done it before is quite difficult. And a lot of companies end up you know, hiring consultants and so on and so forth, which you'd think would be the sensible thing, but the European Commission absolutely hate consultants. So you're at a downside if you're paying a consultant a lot of money because they can see you know, you have to outline exactly how you're spending it, right? So if down at the bottom you've put, oh, and we're paying our consultant 200,000 euros, well, we're not going to like that when we're judging because we're going to say, well, that's quite a, a waste of a lot of money we've just given you. So it's this kind of how do you balance like investing all the time and the effort into, you know, applying for money that you then might not get. So there's different ways of thinking about it. And I think a lot of the time when the startups come in and we ask them the question, you know, why have you, you know, couldn't you get the money elsewhere or why are you wanting this money or was it worth the process of having to kind of apply for this money? Most of them say, oh, it's because it's equity free. And also the stamp approval. I mean, a lot of investors like that you've had European money because they know how much of a process it is to go through to get it and how many people will check it. It's a good sort of, I guess, due diligence thing, but it is quite a process and, you know, it's kind of a yes or no answer. You know, it's quite binary whether or not you get it, right? Well, that is exactly what the invested investor is trying to say. It's more than just the money. It's all the, like you said, the experience, the connections, everything else that comes with investment. And it'd be good to see the EU see that and put it into their mentoring yeah, program do. and everything got, like that. I mean, it's a great program they've got. They have like so many different types of business mentors and they really do kind of keep helping every step. And when you apply, you have to find all your work packages. So like all the essentially all the stages of the amount of time you've said this money's going to be spent. And they check in with you and, you know, you, you get the money like a waterfall. So you get some of it up front. And then when you hit targets, you get more, you know. So they are there and they are there to help. But I would argue it's probably very different from having an angel who you have a really close personal relationship with, who have put their money in, who have a both a sort of personal, but also monetary reason for wanting to help you and probably come with a lot of experience that could be super specific. So you said your partner is a scientist here in London. Do you think that both of you will move forward and maybe go for some EU funding with your own company coming up? 
Uh, we're not deep tech enough for that. No, we're a media organisation. There's no research required to make our product unless we suddenly start to do a biotech spin out. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, no. So um, not the next company then? Well, I mean, we talked a bit about do we make Science Disrupt a much bigger thing? And once Lawrence is finished with his piece of research he's on right now and, you know, I'm a freelancer, so I can kind of stop doing what I'm doing at any point. Do we go full time and make it this big venture? But, and I think a lot of it comes back to both me being like, do you know what? I actually really love all the other stuff I do that's part of what I do with Science Drop, but also isn't. I'm a writer and at the end of the day, Science Drop's a podcast and we don't have the same audience as some of the places I write for. So it's kind of, you know, it's how do you balance what it is you want versus what you think is really needed in the market and, and so on and so forth. I think I'm entrepreneurial, but I'm not sure I'm a founder, if that makes sense. So Gemma, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. We've all learned so much about Disrupt and also Horizon 2020. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor.